All right, this is the Bridgetown podcast. It's also the Van City podcast. So I'm Josh Porter, and I'm sitting here in the basement of First Baptist with John Mark Coleman. Hello. The one and only. And today we're actually super excited because we're joined by Dr. Greg Boyd, who's a theologian and teacher, as well as a pastor at Woodland Hills Church, which is out in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, Before that, he was a professor of theology for about 16 years, I believe, at Bethel University. And Greg is a, a prolific author. He's authored or co-authored uh, 22 books, and they deal in everything from apologetics to neuroscience and the historicity of the New Testament and imaginative prayer, and in particular, providence, the problem of evil. And uh, Greg's done a lot of work on nonviolence and the teachings of Jesus. So his, his latest work is actually this massive tome. It's almost 1,500 pages in length. It's a scholarly study of violent depictions of God in the New Testament. So uh, naturally, Greg has often had a few provocative or controversial things to say. And as a result, he's been the source of like uh, widespread interest. He's appeared in the New York Times and on the Charlie Rose Show and CNN. And when he's not busy with all that, he's tweeting about the new speed metal album that he discovered or playing drums <laughs> in his band Not Dead Yet. Uh, and it was actually... It's called having, it's, it's called having ADD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an expression of his ADD. Uh, it was actually Greg's writing that first kindled uh, my love for theology and biblical studies. Uh, I met Greg in 2009 after I'd bothered him with some of my band's music uh, and named a, a song after one of Greg's books, The Myth of a Christian Nation, which is actually why we wanted Greg on this particular podcast, because uh, Greg's writing and thinking on nonviolence and the Anabaptist tradition and how Disciples of Jesus engage with government has been massively uh, influential to both John Mark and myself. Uh, so, Greg, it's such a joy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. It's a joy to be uh, invited to be here. Thanks. And uh, let me start with a commercial. Uh, one, your song, uh, Myth of a Christian Nation, is one heck of a good rocket song. I recommend it hardly. The second <laughs> thing is that uh, the big academic book on the Old Testament pictures of God uh, now has a popular level uh, version. It's called cross vision. So for lay people who don't want to get into the, you know, thick weeds of the scholarly debates, uh, I, you can get a readable version. And before uh, you say uh, no, I want the scholarly one. It's like what, fifteen hundred pages long? Yeah, up around there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm actually reading the popular version right now, Greg. I can't put it down. I'm not quite done with it, so I guess oh, great. apparently I can put it down. But <laughs> but I find it lied. fascinating. Yeah, and it's you're a great writer, and uh, it's really provocative. So it just it pulls you from page to page. Well, thank you. Good. I hope it helps people. Yeah, and Greg, you know, we've been teaching our way at, at both of our churches through the Sermon on the Mount. We've uh, intentionally set aside a bit of extra space to deal with Jesus' teachings on nonviolence and enemy love, uh, due largely to the additional and very legitimate, uh, very practical questions the text raises for many American disciples of Jesus, many of whom have absolutely no paradigm for Christian pacifism or nonviolence or the history of it whatsoever. Right. And uh, perhaps chief among those questions is what what implications Jesus' teachings on nonviolence and enemy love has on the way his disciples should or should not interact with the state or participate in government, in other words. Yeah. And of course, uh, when, when that question is uh, broached, it, it's often done so in the context of um, Romans, uh, Romans 13. Um, and we found, John Mark and I, that interestingly, it's easy to zero in on one particular area of, of Romans and overlook what precedes that passage and what uh, immediately right, right. follows. Um, yeah. So I think we'd actually love to just sort of read through a bit of the text here and then have you give us your take on it, if that's all right. 
Go, go for it. Okay, so I'm going to read the Bible, and hopefully this won't sound boring if you are there hearing this and you're at the gym working out or you're on a run or you're on your morning commute or whatever. Just take in these words from the writer Paul to the church in first century Rome. He writes this, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. He goes on to say, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, shared with the Lord's people who are in need. And then he has this line, which is his interpretation of Jesus. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So that's the end of Romans 12. Then here is the passage in question, Romans 13, the next line. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority that which, except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason." They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And here's the next paragraph that a lot of people cut out. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Amen. So, Greg, we were chatting before we started. Um, You have a little essay on Romans 12 and 13, I think the title of which is Our Nations Called to Turn the Other Cheek. And your work there was really helpful for me because this was one of, when I was first introduced to the idea of nonviolence, the idea that Jesus is teaching that his followers are not to, to reject the violence or passivism binary and to look for a creative kind of option C, nonviolent solution to love their enemy. One of my first questions was, at a biblical level, what about Romans 13? And then at a common sense level, what does this say for, does this mean America should get rid of its military, no more police force, no more criminal justice system? Like, what are the implications of all of that? And so your work here was really helpful. So what's the question, Josh? How how do we read this passage? Yeah, give us your take on how how do you answer this question? I'm sure people must ask you about Romans 13 constantly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, A lot of times, actually, Romans 13 is appealed to by people who are trying to argue 
that Christians have a responsibility to get involved in government and even in the military. Uh, because look, it's all been established by God, and therefore it's godly to get involved in uh, political offices, even if that means you're going to have to command soldiers to go kill and be willing to be killed uh, and uh, to be involved in, in the military. Uh, now, the first thing to notice about that passage is that um, is, is Paul saying that all governments are, uh, as they are, are exactly as God wanted them to be? Because if you're going to say that, then what about Nazi Germany and, you know, all the other nightmarish regimes that we've seen throughout history? Uh, was Hitler a, you know, the agent of God, the servant of God? Um, and I don't think very many people would want to say that. It's funny, we, people appeal to this passage to say uh, uh, Christians have a responsibility to be involved in, in political offices and in carrying the sword, but they, they don't tend to extend that courtesy to other nations. They wouldn't want to say that of Nazi Germany or of North Korea today or probably of, of any other nation. But there's an assumption that our nation is the godly nation, so our people should be involved in, in the, the military. But it, actually, the passage isn't saying that at all. Uh, the word that for established there, um, it, the, the, it, it's, it's the word tasso in Greek, and, and it has a connotation of to file something, um, to, to put something in its proper place. Uh, it's like uh, uh, an example that John Howard Yoder uses is, is uh, a librarian filing books. You know, the librarian may, doesn't necessarily like the book. The librarian may despise the book, but the librarian knows where the book should be filed. Given that it's this kind of a nation, uh, or it's this kind of a book, it belongs in this category, on this shelf. So also, God comes to the world and he sees that, you know, as it is, he hates this, but all governments carry the sword. They're going to be carrying the sword. Uh, actually, even government wasn't God's ideal. Um, th that comes about as a result of the fall. But um, given that we have these governments and given that it's a violent world, what Paul is saying is that God will is at work in them. He's at work in them to try to curb sin because in a fallen world, there's a lot of people who won't uh, uh, avoid doing the wrong thing because of their conscience. It's just because of a threat of punishment. And, and, and so God will use that. You know, God's not above getting involved in all the grime of, of human existence. And so God is at work to, to use these uh, sword-wielding governments they're going to carry the sword anyways. God will be at work to influence them so that they administrate justice, they punish wrongdoers. And so insofar as they're doing that, Christians should submit to them, pay their taxes, and whatever, because our business is about this other kind of a kingdom. But what's really interesting there is, is that uh, uh, Paul says that God uses the sword of, of the government as an agent of wrath to exact vengeance. Now, those are the that exact same things that Paul had said Christians are not to do in Romans 12. Right, so, so it's like, there's almost like a play on words there. Exactly, exactly. So we're never to to avenge, uh, to, to take vengeance. We're to leave all all of that stuff up to the wrath of God. And, and then what Paul's saying is, okay, will you leave it to the wrath of God? Now, here's how God does it. And God will be working through all the sword-carrying uh, soldiers and governments of the world uh, to uh, uh, curb curb uh, violence and sin as much as possible. So, yes, government can do that. They're going to do that. They've always done that. Uh, and God's at work to, to bring as much good out of evil as he can. But we're not to be involved in that. Uh, our calling is to be putting on display the unique character of an alternative kingdom. And, and that kingdom always looks like Jesus Christ, uh, bleeding for the world and serving the world. It seems like there's an interesting shift in the pronouns, Greg. I'm looking at Romans 12 and 13 in front of me. At the end of Romans 12, which 
unless if I'm missing something, is the most in-depth teaching on nonviolence and enemy love in the New Testament after Jesus of Nazareth. Unless if I'm missing something. Yeah, Peter and three and Hebrews and some other spots. But it seems like this is the most in-depth teaching, kind of Paul working out Jesus teaching from Matthew 5. Right, right. And the pronoun there is you. So he is clearly talking to followers of Jesus in the church in Rome. Then in Romans 13, which is his teaching on like... The, ra- the question that it raises of what about the government, the, there's a pronoun shift and now it's they. So he's no, it seems like, am I reading this right, that when he's talking about the government and they are God's servants, you know, and we submit to them. Exactly. Like he's no longer talking to the followers of Jesus in the church in Rome. Now he's talking about they, about them, about well, the he, government he's, he's, in Rome. Is that right or no? He's talking to the Christians in Rome, uh, uh, still in in, uh, chapter 13, but he's talking to them about them, about they. Uh, He's he's assuming that the governments of the world are are outsiders. They're not part of of the the community. So, yeah, it's it's a much more detached sort of thing. And it's important that that, uh, your, your listeners understand that in the original, there wasn't any chapter divisions. And so uh, it, this is all part of one thought. It's one unit of thought, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so, yeah, it's very much – in 12, he's talking to uh, Christians inside the, the community. And then in 13, he's talking to these Christians about the, how government deals thing, with, with things out in the world because now he's addressing what should – how should Christians interact with the kingdoms of this world. And all he says there is that. Trust that God's at work there to bring about as much good as possible and pay your taxes and don't rebel against them. Yeah, this seems uh, like that's, I'm looking at two commands. Verse 1, be subject to the government authorities. And then in verse 7, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. That seems yep, like yep. that's what he's saying to the followers of Jesus. Exactly. And, that's, that, and, and don't rebel. Uh, and that's the extent of our responsibility vis-a-vis government. Uh, Peter later on adds one other thing, and that's pray for the emperor. And so we should pray for those who are in office so that they have wisdom. Uh, don't rebel against them. Pay our taxes. And, you know, uh, sometimes I hear Christians getting kind of their undies up in a bundle about, well, if you pay taxes, you're supporting a wicked regime. Well, you know, the Roman government wasn't like, you know, a bunch of holy angels walking around. They did nasty stuff. Um, and, and so Paul, Paul I, I think, is actually just saying, look, it's not – it's a distraction from our kingdom call to, to be doing more than that. Uh, uh, to, to not pay your taxes or to rebel or whatever. No, that's that's the governments of this world. They're not worth fighting over. Just get along with them so you can be about your kingdom business. That's great. And it seems like, Josh, jump in here. Well, yeah. So, Greg, naturally, the when when you approach the text with this paradigm in place and you begin to understand that this is one cohesive unit of thought and that Paul has a very specific... Uh, sort of command in mind for the disciples of Jesus in Rome, and he does have an understanding of what the state is going to do, um, but he is drawing a, a difference in between what the church is going to do and what the state is going to do. How do you then begin to work out the implications for you know the disciple of Jesus in America or, or whatever respective nation, especially when uh, so many of us have been kind of brought up in this understanding that, uh, like you said, well, our, our nation is the right nation— 
so we are to participate in government um, and and not just to the extent of like we should all be in the military and fight but there is this kind of understanding that Christians should participate in government as much as they possibly can if Paul is drawing a distinction between what the state does and the church does um, how hardcore a distinction is that and how do we live into that that tension and that divide yeah it's a very very good question a very important question um, and and I, I think the answer to it will, in, to some degree, depend on your context. You know, it, it, it's different to ask the question here in America than it is in Russia or China or France or whatever. So it has to be contextualized. But the most important thing, I think, is to maintain there is an absolute distinction between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And and our our job, our bullseye, is to be manifesting the kingdom of God, advancing the kingdom of God. Um, you know, all the governments of the world, they all use some kind of power over. Everyone's trying to get power to enforce their will on others because they think their will and their ideas are superior to others. Uh, and in the kingdom of God, uh, we're to have no such thing. We're, we're, our power is power under. It's the power of self-sacrificial love. And and um, we're putting on display the character of God. And so keeping those two things distinct is very, very important. When we When we begin to blur those things, which has been almost constant throughout church history since the uh, fourth century when the church first got in bed with 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 the government uh, th- th- those two th- th- it gets all blurred up and now uh, the the church gets reduced to being just a religious version of of what's already out there we're sort of the high priest of the state and we do the state's bidding and now all the teachings of Jesus get compromised and we're not putting on display that unique uh, distinct character of God and things of that sort. So it's really important to keep those two things uh, very, very distinct. And I would always err on the side of separation. Um, you know, if, if, there's, if there's anything ambiguous about it, then then just don't get involved in it. Uh, for my two cents, you know, I, up until this last election, I, I, I didn't even vote. I mean, since I got since I really got clear about how the two kingdoms are distinct, um, I, I, I just want to stay clear of it. And, and part of that's just my own temperament because I found that I could not get um, – if I even participate in voting, I start to get sucked into the venom of the, the, the political realm. You know, uh, you start to think your ideas are better, and then you start to think that whoever disagrees with you is stupid, and, and bam, you know, you're there. So I'm like a little bit like an alcoholic who's got to just stay totally clear of booze because one sip and I want to guzzle the whole bottle. Uh, this last election, I, I did vote, but it wasn't because I had any trust in the system. Uh, it was rather just a, I, I thought, to, if I can be frank here, that one of the candidates was uh, a serious danger to the republic. And uh, so it's not because I thought, you know, that there's any hope there. It's just, I, I, we live in a context where the government asks you your opinion and, and you're free to give it if you want. Uh, but I'd be very careful about anyone actually thinking, that our hope is in that, that if we just get the right candidate, if we just got the right laws, the right policies, well, then everything will be great um, because our hope is to be totally in Jesus Christ and we cannot serve two masters. Uh, and, and so, so you know, I, I, a lot of that, I just leave it to individual conscience. Um, there's nothing in principle wrong about voting as long as it, you don't get sucked into it and, and, and begin to invite the divisiveness of the political realm into the church. Which is happening all over the place in America, as you can see that the the red blue distinction goes right down down the church. You know, uh, they uh, Paul at one point they're beating up Paul, and Paul objected. He says, "Look, I'm a Roman citizen, and I have got rights as a Roman citizen, so you can't do this to me." So he's talking to government, and later on he was invited to talk to Felix the king, 
And so there's nothing wrong with that in America. You get asked that opinion. If you want to give the opinion, give the opinion. But but don't put any eggs in that basket and don't and be very careful not to get sucked into the the diabolical venom that is increasingly characterizing uh, the political climate of, uh, of our country. Yeah. Because that compromises the beauty of the kingdom that we're supposed to be putting on display. All our, our eyes should be fixed on, on Jesus Christ as our only hope and then doing his will as our only task. Yeah. And Greg, one of the things I love about your writing on the state is kind of carrying over this thought uh, or this idea that is uh, – prevalent in in writings about nonviolence, which is that Christian pacifism isn't passivity. It's like a creative third way of Jesus. And I've, I've read and heard a lot about you writing that the disciple of Jesus can and does vote, as it were, in the things that they do and say, in the, in the ways that they're enacting and bringing into kingdom. Absolutely. It, you know, everything we do is a vote. We're saying this is worth doing. Everything we do is a vote. And, and what's infinitely more important than what you do every two or every four years and what your opinion is. Uh, Far more important is what do you do every day? How do you spend your money? How do you spend your time? How do you respond to people? How do you interact with people? Because with everything we do, everything we say, we're saying, you know, this is a vote. This is what I'm for. This is what I'm, I'm behind. That was a very good point to bring up. So I, I love the chat about voting. You know, it seems like when you t- if you start with Matthew 5 as kind of your center of gravity as a follower of Jesus, not just Matthew 5, but on this issue, um, right, right. It, it then raises all sorts of questions about our involvement in government. And that's everything from the high amb- ambiguity of do we vote or not, and in this election or that, all the way up to can a follower of Jesus be, and then there's that whole list, everything from a police officer to a military right. soldier to the pre- can a follower of Jesus be the president, can he be a congressman or she be a congressman? Mm-hmm. What about law? I was had a great chat a few days ago with a gal in our church who's a clerk for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals right into the Supreme Court, and they're dealing with capital cases. And she's a clerk. She's not a judge. Right. But, so it just raises all these questions. So I think one of the things that I hear on a regular basis, and I would just love, love to have you give your reading to, Martin Luther, as you know, his reading of Romans 13 and the Reformation, I think, shaped a way, the way that a lot of people in the West have read Romans 13 since. And correct me if I'm wrong, but my kind of interpretation of what he has to say about Romans 13 is essentially there are things that we can't do in our private or our personal life as a follower of Jesus. For example, we can't kill our enemy, we have to love them, but that we can do if we are an agent of the state. So whether that be as the president or as a sniper in the U.S. military or whatever the example is. And therefore, because of Romans 13, because the state has been established by God, it is a servant of God, therefore things that are not okay in our private or personal life are okay if it is in our role as a judge, as a you fill yep. in the blank. So right or wrong, and I know that we're, again, dealing with implications, it's not black or white here. Do you think that's the right way to read Romans 13? Because it, it almost seems, sounds like two ethical systems. There's like one ethic yeah, yeah. for me when I'm at home and another ethic for me if I am in my job for the government. And again, government is a really broad category. Technically, the person yeah, getting yeah, out a yeah, parking yeah. ticket is in the government. And I, yeah, sure. I, you know. So, so it, it, see, in, in, on this issue, I'll be honest with you, I, 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 I think it is black and white. <laughs> I, think, I think Luther is completely in the wrong on this. Uh, his idea is that, you know, uh, in your personal life, you put on the kingdom hat, and then uh, you love everybody and da-da-da-da. But then, you know, if you're playing the role of something, of someone in government, uh, you put on, on that hat, take off your kingdom hat, you put on this different hat, 
and now uh, you are able to go out and kill. And and so this is what you know um, uh, the famous discussion that uh, Luther had with uh, that one king. I forget his name now, but uh, it, it was he had he, he there's a rebellion that broke out, uh, the peasants' rebellion, and and this king who was a convert to Lutheranism uh, said, "Ask Luther, uh, you know, how, how do I respond?" And his Luther told him, well, your responsibility as a king is to squash the rebellion. And the guy responded, well, that will involve me having to massacre people, and, and that's a sin. And that's where uh, Luther said, well, if you sin, love God, sin boldly, and love God more boldly still. Uh, I think that's schizophrenic. You, you, you see this uh, philosophy, and it's often called two kingdoms uh, theology, uh, really well illustrated in Chuck Colson's book, God and Government. Um, and Chuck Colson there just says point blank uh, that if you're serving in a high level in office, you have to be willing to command uh, soldiers to go kill and be willing to be killed. You have to lie. You have to deceive. You know, it, it's for the good of the country. And that's just what you have to do. And you shouldn't have any pain of conscience about that. I think the kingdom is either either if you're in either you're in the kingdom or not. And you are the kingdom. It's, it, it's not a role you play. It's who you are. And and um, I don't see anywhere in, in the New Testament any justification for thinking that there's an off button to kingdom love or off button to nonviolence, an off button to, you know, Jesus says we're supposed to love like the rain falls and like the sun shines because that's how God loves. Uh, that, that's indiscriminate love. You know, the rain doesn't pick and choose who it's going to love. It just loves. And, and uh, it, it, it just gets people wet. And the sun doesn't pick and choose who it's going to get warm. It just gets It just gets everyone warm. It just does what it does. So also, that's how the Heavenly Father loves, and that's how we're supposed to love. And then Jesus says that you may be children of your Father in heaven, Matthew 5, 45. So the criteria for being a child of God, for being considered a child of God, according to Jesus, is you love like the Father loves, and that means uh, you love indiscriminately, and you never retaliate, you never engage in violence against them. Uh, and I, there's no qualification there. Uh, he never qualifies that. Uh, so the idea that you can put on a different hat, uh, I just think is is absolutely contrary to, to the kingdom. So let me posit a few objections that I hear in the back of my mind and that I hear on a regular basis from people in our church or on the street. So one objection I hear is, all right, if we did this, Greg, if that's the right way to read the New Testament, Romans 12, 13, Jesus, then we would have no, do you want a government with no Christians in it? Do you want a military with no Christians in it? Do you want a legal system or whatever with no Christians in it? What would you say to that? Um. Well, for one thing, I, I don't see any objection to folks serving in like local governments or, or you know, where, where you don't have where the criteria should be. Does this role require me to ever act contrary to my kingdom convictions? Right, because government's like, way too broad of a category. You have to talk it, more it specifically. Is. Exactly, it is. Um, so, uh, but but when it comes to uh, officials playing a role. That that uh, um, involves uh, something like ki- killing or stealing, uh, or hiding duplicitousness, whatever. There, I, I would I'd rather have uh, non Christians playing that role because uh, Christians playing that role confuses the 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 distinctness of of the kingdom of God. And on that note, I'd say that I don't see that being a follower of Jesus makes anyone better at at any governing job. It might make you worse. In fact, I think it should make you worse. Uh, because you, you'd be less conniving, less less uh, you know, ruthless. Um, I'd rather have a non Christian, a competent non Christian in an office than a, than a, an incompetent Christian. 
Um, and, and yeah, so, so there, I, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, at some point you got to trust God, <laughs> you know, some people say, well, what happens if, you know, uh, the whole military became Christian Well, then America could, could be taken over and we don't yeah, be Muslims. And, that was the next and, objection. Yeah. Cause I hear that. And I'm like, well, I don't think that's going to happen, but I, I just had somebody ask me a few days ago, what if every single person in America became a Christian and what you were saying was true, that Jesus was calling all of us to nonviolence, what would happen to our nation? And, you know. Oh, I, I've had people get so irate at this. I, about uh, maybe three months ago, a guy came up to me afterwards, and I had just mentioned a little bit about nonviolence in the message. He came up and he just railed at me, like, if, 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 if Christians hear this message and they start doing it, well, then, you know, no one's going to be willing to kill for our country, and now the Muslims will take over and we'll be under Sri law. Is that what you want? You want us to have Sri law? Yeah, it's like, okay, dude, take a chill pill. Uh, you know, this. <laughs> Back, back down a little bit here. I've right? had the exact same thing happen to me, but they added and have them rape your wife as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy was like, you know, with, women have to cover their faces and Christians will be put to death. And, but you see, at some point, you, got, you have to trust God. In fact, everything Jesus teaches presupposes that we're trusting God to the point, the point of being willing to die. Uh, and this is what the book of Revelation is all about. I think if you're reading it in a responsible way, that it's they bear witness to the truth by their willingness to die. And the whole book is there to, to tell folks that even though it looks like you're losing from the world's perspective, and, you know, in the early church, okay, it's not a big church, you know, at this point. Um, by the end of the century, I mean, it's growing at an incredible rate, but there's still a minority. And then Nero comes along and decides he wants to wipe out the Christians. And... Um, conceivably could have. I mean, they're being exterminated. So it looks like you're losing. But the whole point of the book of Revelation is to be saying, even though it looks like you're losing, you're actually witnessing. You're actually winning because you're witnessing to the true character of God. You're putting that on display. And that's the power of self-sacrificial love is the power that's going to win in the end. And you just have to trust that. It, it may not make it may not make common sense, but look at how much common sense does it make for the omnipotent God to become a human being and then die on the cross? You know, if you've got all the power in the universe, what do you do? You all you get yourself crucified. That doesn't fit anyone's common sense. Uh, but Paul says the cross, even though it's foolish and weak to the world, it is to us the wisdom and the power of God. Colossians 1, 18 through 30. It's a beautiful section of scripture. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it, we, we, we may look foolish. We may look weak. It may seem stupid. But at the end of the day, you ask the question, do you, are you going to make common sense Lord of your life, or are you going to make Jesus Christ Lord of your life? Well, uh, what are you going to follow? Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's powerful. Another objection I'm thinking right now and that I hear on a regular basis is, well, but doesn't Romans 13 say that God has, one, established government, and two, that he's using it? It sounds like God is actually current right now using government and in particular using its sword. So therefore, shouldn't we be involved in that? Uh, the word there, as I said earlier, the word there for established is tasso. And, and it has the connotation of filing. You put things in file, put things in order. So yes, God is, is working in governments. Uh, he's, he's, he's using them uh, according to their nature. Now that they all carry the sword, so he's going to use them in the sword. And he'll be at work to uh, bring about as much justice as possible and curb sin as much as possible. But that shouldn't surprise us because God's always at work to bring good out of evil, to turn things to his advantage. And he's not afraid of getting his hands dirty. But because God uh, accommodates the sword-wielding governments of this world and works in them to carry out justice as much as possible, doesn't mean that we're called to be a part of that. Uh, because Paul, that's the very same activity that Paul just forbid us doing in, in Romans 12. 
And you're saying that God regularly uses things that don't necessarily have his blessing or his stamp of approval. Absolutely. He's, he's, he's always at work. Um, he's, uh, uh, you know, at all times and all places at work to, to further his kingdom, to turn people's hearts, uh, to curb violence as much as possible. Is, he doesn't is the do cross it. even an example of that? Uh, yeah, the cross is the ultimate example of that. And the cross is on one level, the supreme evil, the son of God being crucified by the wickedness of human beings to bear the sin of the world under the dominion of the powers. And yet uh, that is the decisive event that turns the world around, that begins a new creation, uh, and that will eventually save the world. So, yeah, that's the, the ultimate example of that. Um, but yeah, but, but and that shows us the kind of God we're dealing with. He dives into sin. The cross is the ex- ultimate example of God, you know, diving into our hell and taking upon Himself in order to allow us to be able to share in His heaven. And um, that's a the paradigm, paradigmatic instance of what God's doing at all places at all times. There's no darkness that is so dark that He's not willing to, to get involved in it and to shed some light. No hell that's too hot for him to get involved in it and to begin to be bring some, some balm and some healing uh, to it. Wow. Greg, you know, the uh, to ask you a, a bit of a pastoral question along these same lines, and not to make you, you know, put your business in the street or anything, but if, if when folks have come to you or if folks come to you and they're wrestling with the implications of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus who lives in a nation and who submits to a government— while there's a clear delineation between the state and the church, all those things. Um, you mm-hmm. said earlier that you invite people to practice their conscience, that you, that you would invite, that or you acknowledge that there's a level of nuance and that there's a level sure. of distinction between broad strokes government and local government. Um, but, you know, when I've had this conversation, folks have often come to me and they've said, like, but, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about and insert a very Jesus-centric cause uh, that they believe they can sort of uh, fight for, advocate more effectively within the context of government. And maybe that starts in the local sense, but eventually it graduates to something much broader. Um, how, how specific do you get when you're actually trying to advise people how they should or should not participate in the state? Yeah, yeah. Well, well I, I, in this context, I think there's there's room for a lot of ambiguity. Um, I'm much more about teaching people's principles um, and letting them work that out in their own life. You know, Paul says in, in Philippians two, work out your own salvation, fear and trembling. Uh, you, you have to work that out. Uh, and and I, I am not of the persuasion that you know there's one size fits all. That there's a rule for everything. That you know that that, that fits everybody. Um, and so I, I, I've even had people come and they ask me, uh, this happened kind of recently, uh, a, a guy was thinking about, he, he was fairly new to our church, and he, he was thinking about going into uh, the armed services uh, because that would give him then when he gets out in education and things like that. And I didn't just say, you know, no, you can't do that. Uh, I rather just gave him passages to wrestle with. I go, well, whatever you do, I, you know, first of all, I asked him, are you, are you a committed follower of Jesus? And he said he was. I said, well, then I, I want you to chew on this. You know, if you're going to get involved in this, you, you may have to kill someone that you don't know, you have no grievance against. It's just that your commanding officer tells you to kill them. Um, and you have to reconcile that with Jesus teaching here about loving your enemies, blessing those who persecute you, doing good to those who despitefully use you, uh, turning the other cheek, never retaliate, and just wrestle with that. And um, I'd rather have people come to their own conclusions on that than me just trying to decree it by fiat. And it's the same thing with all all political involvement. What I'll tell people is, okay, it, 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 
you're feeling led to go in that direction. And I'm not going to tell you that God's not leading you in that because I'm not God. But uh, I will tell you this. I, one, be very careful because you're playing with fire. Uh, you don't get sucked into the polarity of the culture. Um, uh, two, always remember, always respect the ambiguity. I tell people when it comes to politics uh, that that are there good and decent and smart people who disagree with you? Like you can have two people who are very passionate about the poor and they want to be advocates for the poor. And that's fantastic. Uh, but if you start to do it by political means, because you think this policy is better than that policy, um, well, always respect the ambiguity because if good and intelligent people disagree with you, then 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 it, it, don't make that a kingdom thing. Don't set the kingdom label on that. Uh, because now you're going to say the kingdom of God is more like the democratic policy rather than the Republican. And, and what can easily happen, and it's happening all too much in our culture right now, is that you forget that the, that the people who disagree with you are good and decent and intelligent people, and you just start to demonize them. And they don't really care about the poor, and they say this, but they're a bunch of hypocrites. And, um, and now you're getting yanked out of your kingdom calling. So always keep your bullseye on the kingdom. The other thing I, I would say is this, that uh, nowhere in the New Testament do I see any indication that it's any part of our job to tell government how to do things. Like somehow being a follower of Jesus makes us smarter on governmental things. We have an opportunity to get involved if we want. That's fine. But being a follower of Jesus doesn't make us better at that. Uh, we're just ordinary people. And and if you're passionate about, you know, helping schools, go out and help the schools. Just do it. Uh, and what has happened, sadly, is that, that the church has done so little of this. It's been tragic. The church has been mainly about believism, where you just believe the right things. We're the club of the people who have all the right opinions about Jesus, whatever, that we leave, we've left everything to government so that when people come to think about how to make an impact on society, they immediately go to governmental stuff rather than to the church. And my passion is to get folks to wake up to the call of the church to do this. And, and now the, the credit goes to God rather than to Uncle Sam. So I'll give you an example. We here in, in St. Paul, there's a, uh, an inner city school that was really in trouble, um, underfunded. It was, it was testing at the bottom of all the test scores and stuff. There's talk of it sh- uh, shutting down. And, and so we asked the question, what can we do to help this school? Um, now we could have we could have you know started saying well let's let's let, let's talk to the, uh, let's advocate this 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 policy or that policy and could have said what what can government do how should we encourage government to take care of the school and if we had done that I guarantee you we would have had fifty percent of the people saying oh do it the Republican way the other fifty percent going let's do it the Democratic way but instead we shelved that question and we asked what can we do and so we just went down there and asked the school what do you need and we started to meet those needs and one thing led to another uh, we started to replace windows we started to we gave them a new playground started painting the walls uh supplying textbooks providing mentors and 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 as the neighborhood began to see us doing the stuff they joined on cuz everyone wants to be part of this thing and and it was a god glorifying beautiful thing that's had implications. That happened 12 years ago, and we're still seeing this, these positive uh, ramifications from it because some of the teachers start coming to church. Uh, we still have mentors over there helping the, the the kids learn to read and whatever. That's how the, that I believe is how the, we should and the kingdom go about changing things. Uh, get on, get get down your hands and feet and start 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 working and manifest God's character of self sacrificial love. Greg, I just love the pastoral answer. I love that rather than make a list of like these are the government positions that are okay. These are the government positions that 
aren't okay. You're starting with the principles of Jesus teaching the New Testament and then with great love and respect for each man or each woman, saying you just have to wrestle with that tension. But it just feels to me like all too often, and often because of Romans 13, people don't even want to admit that there is a tension. They right, want to right. just jump right forward into, well, Romans 13 says the government's here, so I'm doing it so great. And even if what they are doing is a beautiful thing, as a, working as a lawyer or as a police officer or you fill in the mm-hmm. blank, it feels like there is a tension there. I remember you reading at one point, you answering the question on a follower, um, follower of Jesus as a police officer. And I think you used that line in Philippians, um, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Right, right. You know what I mean? Like you have to wrestle with it and love and respect to you as you do that in community, in dialogue with the New Testament and, and with and Jesus And we're all in process. And we're all in process. And and one of the beautiful things about Jesus is he gives people space to be in process. You know, he heals that centurion's uh, 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 servant. And um, uh, but he doesn't just go say, OK, now, centurion, you got to step down. Uh, he, he doesn't do that with anybody. You know, he, he heals somebody or delivers them from demons. He doesn't say, you know, here's the four things you got to change about your life. Uh, he realizes that there's a process there. And, and, and you, learn to, you know, turn people over to God and let God work in their lives. And what God allows for one person at one point in their life is not maybe what God prohibits from another person at one point in their life. And so you've got to be okay with that kind of relativism because only God knows the inner hearts of, 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 of folks. Okay, I know that we're just grilling you at this point. And once again, I'm, oh, I love it. I, I, I would say it. I'm playing the devil's advocate, but I hate that phrase. And I'm pretty sure that's the wrong side to be on. Um, <laughs> but I'm just, again, in my mind, hearing objections. And this is my summary of a number of questions that people sent in from our church. Another one is, um, I'm just thinking about some of the heroes, in particular of the Old Testament, Joseph, Daniel, Esther, all of whom were government officials at high levels of government. So this is not a local city commissioner working, you know, with the housing crisis. This is sure. high, this is a vice president or a president or a chief of staff. And they, you know, from a literary perspective, they read or they come off as heroes, even though some of them, in particular, I think of Esther, are involved in immorality, if not full-on idolatry at some point in the storyline. But they read as heroes. And even I was thinking, you know, last year we did a series from the book of Daniel and then kind of in collusion with one Peter and the way that he picks up on the motif of Daniel and this idea of of being a church in exile, how America has shifted from a a Christianized culture to a post-Christian culture how we are no longer the majority as followers of Jesus, but now in a minority position and like just a whole other frame of reference and what is our posture in this kind of a cultural moment. So we use this idea from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs and uh, the historian Toynbee of a creative minority, what it's like to be a creative minority on the margins of society, practicing the way of Jesus together for the good of the larger society. And so, of course, we read through Daniel as a, a great example of that, but that just got me thinking about, man, if what, what are the implications? Because you have these Old Testament heroes that were government officials at right. high sure. levels of government. How, how do you read that? And yeah, well, it, it, King David, you know, he's the ultimate example. He's he's the king, highest you can get. Uh, it's you're in First Samuel. It was his policy to go out and uh, slaughter enemies, and it was his, it was his procedure to leave no person alive, not no man, woman, child, infant, anything. Uh, uh, do we want to say that because it was okay for King David, it's okay for us? And then if you're going to say it was okay for us uh, to be involved in harem, which is a phrase that's used in the Old Testament, uh, to devote people to destruction, then what do you do with the teachings of Jesus that tell us the contrary? Uh, you know, we need to understand that that 
in the same way that God works with us, uh, depending where we're at, you know, he gives us space to grow. Uh, he's not a coercive God. Uh, he's, he's a, he's an influential God. He works by means of influence, which means that can take time and, and he just grows us into maturity. Well, in, in, in sense, he's been doing that with all of humanity from the beginning. And in the Old Testament, you've got, uh, a people who are, have got really limited, a limited capacity to understand the things of God. So God stoops to accommodate them where they're at. He's always willing to work, get his hands dirty. Uh, this is what my book, uh, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, and also the more popular version, Cross Vision, uh, is about, where God stoops to accommodate people where they're at. Uh, they see him as this violent warrior, and they think they're praising him by ascribing their own violence to him. Uh, this is what everybody in the ancient Near East does. You just he, The more ferocious your God, the more you think you're, you're, you're bragging on God. Our God is so ferocious, he'll rip your babies in two and drink their blood. And, and that's their form of praising God. And you find that kind of thing in the Old Testament. As we read it, however, having had the full revelation of God in Christ, uh, we've got to be able to see that, that this God is stooping to their level uh, to accommodate where they're at. He's letting them think about him this way because he's not going to coerce them into thinking the true thoughts. Uh, and that's a way that he bears their sin, just as he bears their sin on the cross. And when he bears their sin, as is true of the cross, when he bears their sin, that means he takes on an appearance that it, it reflects the ugliness of that sin. And, and so yeah, God, God accommodates all that in the Old Testament. He works with people as they're at. But we're to take all of our marching orders from Jesus Christ. And one of the things that's remarkable about the revelation of God in Christ is in some of the stark ways it contrasts with what was going on before. The new covenant he introduces uh, is completely different in many respects from the covenant that was, was, was there in the past. Uh, for example, a center part of the covenant of the Old Testament was the law. But Jesus comes and he introduces a covenant that's based on God's transforming grace. And the Old Covenant was rooted in nationalism, in sacred nationalism. Uh, the, the Israel called as a unique nation. But Jesus comes and brings a covenant uh, and a new revelation that God's kingdom is going to involve all the nations of the world. It's tra- it transcends nations. And in the Old Testament, a, a central part of it, because it was nas- based on nationalism and law, is it, it, it used the sword because you can't enforce the law without the sword and you can't enforce nationalism without the sword. But Jesus comes along and in his kingdom, he says, we're putting away the sword. So, so uh, our job is to uh, be, have our eyes focused on Christ and this new, uh, the, the new covenant that we're, we're a part of and not take our marching orders from what happened before, what God allowed to happen in, in the past. But see, sadly, what we've seen since throughout church history, since the, the fourth century, is that when, 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 when Christians were given uh, the, were invited to share the responsibility for running the Roman Empire, you can't run the Roman Empire without using the sword, so they had to find ways of justifying using the sword. Uh, and their, the, the favorite tactic is, since it's hard to, to justify it by appealing to Jesus, they just jumped over Jesus and grabbed on the, whatever part of the Old Testament they wanted, and that became their justification. Um, and, and that, that is, I think, just, uh, a wrong-headed theological move. Uh, the way the New Testament presents Jesus is that he is the full revelation of what God is like. He's not one revelation among others. He's the culmination and fulfillment of all previous revelations. And so, so we should look to him and his instructions to take our marching orders and to figure out what God, to, to see what God is like 
and, and not subvert his authority by appealing to the Old Testament. And that was one of my favorite things in CrossVision and your most recent work is exactly what you just said, that Jesus is not one revelation among many, although we believe that all of the library of Scripture is inspired by the Spirit of God. But he is the full revelation, like he is the center point. And when there is a tension between Jesus' life and teachings and that of King David or Joshua or whatever, go with Jesus. Absolutely. Right? As a general rule, like if, and, and often it's because we're not reading the Bible right, but where there is a tension between, well, Jesus is saying one thing, and so-and-so in the Bible is saying another thing, and maybe it's because we're misreading the Bible, but if there is a tension there, as a general rule, go with Jesus is always good advice. Is that kind of a- what you're saying? Absolutely. 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 In fact, Jesus says in John 5 that all Scripture is about him. It's the point to him, and he's the life of Scripture. Um, and in, in Luke 24, he, say, he says that all Scripture points to him, but not just to him, but to his sufferings on the cross. And so we should read the Bible through the lens of the cross, knowing that someone is all supposed to point to the cross. And whatever else that means, it means that we should never um, be, allow anything in the Old Testament to compete with Jesus. It's all supposed to point to him, not away from him. And so uh, if we come upon uh, any part of Scripture that, that uh, uh, contradicts what we find in Christ, uh, we, we, we can't give it authority alongside of Jesus. Uh, its authority is simply to point to Jesus, and so we've got to dig deeper to see how it does that. That's what I'm doing in, in Cross Vision. Greg, you know, one of the things that you've written quite a bit about is the sort of prophetic critique of um, nationalistic idolatry, uh, and it it seems to me that in my own narrow experience in my few years around, <laughs> that there's obviously a pendulum swing. You know, one one sort of side is in in power, and the other side goes bananas, and then the pendulum swings the other way, and it's sort of on and on the merry-go-round goes. But right now, we're sort of in this very uh, unique cultural moment. Maybe not unique in the grand scheme of things, but it's, it's certainly uh, quite specific to this time and this place where... Like you said earlier, the the socio-political divide is so intense and there's so much vitriol and so much even violence on a regular basis erupting in the streets or uh, uh, violence of words, violent deeds. It, it's just it seems like no matter what you do every day, you turn on the news and the divide is getting wider and the violence is getting greater. And it seems to me that. Um, the temptation to lapse into nationalistic idolatry is so intense for both sides, whereas even in my own narrow experience just a few years prior, uh, it felt like a little more comfortable for one side to say like, hey, listen, we're, we're not being idolatrous of the state. We understand the distinction. It's the other side that's going crazy. But now it feels like more than ever, uh, everyone is starting to inadvertently put all their eggs in the basket of government and saying, we have to either do something to stop this horrible government or we're all going to hell in a handbasket or vice versa. We have to do something to keep this government or, or everyone's going to go to hell in a handbasket. So I can only imagine the conversations that you're having. How, are you, how do you continue to encourage folks to not put their faith in the state uh, whether it's as an advocate of the current leadership or a, as a detractor of the current leadership, how do we keep our focus on Jesus? Well, I'm not what to say in response to that, other than keep your focus on Jesus. Uh, I, I, I'm always reminding folks uh, about um, the the how our kingdom uh, is to contrast with the kingdom of the world. And all of our hope is to be in the in, in Jesus Christ and and what and what He's doing through the church and 
Um, we, we, we only have one master. We don't have two. I mean, the only reason I obey government is not because government's got any authority over me. It's because Jesus has authority over me, and he tells me to go get along with the government as much as possible. Pay your taxes. Um, but but I, we, we don't have two masters. And but by continually reaffirming that, um, uh, it, it, keep, it keeps people from being sucked into the venom of, of the, 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 and the polarities of, of our current culture. And here's the thing is that while it's a sad state of affairs of what's going on right now in America and the polarities and the ugliness and all that, uh, but, but what is, but everything is a kingdom opportunity. And so here is a beautiful time. I always encourage folks that whatever in your surrounding environment is, is inconsistent with the kingdom, bring the kingdom to it and, and shine the light. You know, you said put your light up on the hill, let it shine. And so we're having right now, for example, increased racism. Uh, this is the time where the kingdom people need to be out there. And, and while the xenophobia is going crazy, go out and welcome people. Uh, you know, learn their language, uh, or at least say hello. It means so much to like, I, I've got a Muslim gas station, uh, in, in my neighborhood. And I just learned a few phrases, you know, salam alaikum and shukur. And, and, and they so appreciate that because I'm just saying, you know, you're welcome here. And, and just be going out of your way to, uh, uh, relate to people who are a different color than you and develop friendships, uh, and, and learn their culture, uh, what is a negative thing for the culture as a whole is a positive thing for the kingdom if we can see it as an opportunity to, to contrast with it. And that's, that's our billboard. That's, that's our living epistle that, that's supposed to be known and read of all people. And that is what attracts people into the kingdom. Uh, if people get sick and tired of the venom that's out there, we're saying, hey, there's a different way to live. There's a different way to do life. There's a different king that you can be following. And uh, invite them in on that. So I think what you're actually saying is, in a sense, an American value. It's the separation of church and state, or you would say the separation of the kingdom of God and, you know, the United States of America. And I, I feel like because we live in a modern Western democracy and because of even the church tradition throughout America, for a lot of people, it's really hard to separate the follower of Jesus conversation and my responsibilities as a follower of Jesus from the citizen conversation and my responsibilities as a citizen. And even hard for people to realize there might be times when my political theory or my socioeconomic theory or what I think is best for America on say, our immigration policy might actually not line up with the heart of God towards, say, the refugee. And so there might be a time, not when I have to set aside my political theory, but when I have to let my allegiance to Jesus transcend and co-opt and go before my political theory or my conviction about how this economic system is to run or whatever, right or wrong, because my first and foremost allegiance is to Jesus as Lord. Is that right? Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, yeah, I, 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 absolutely. And and I guess the only thing I'd add is this, that uh, you can have your own socioeconomic theory, and I'm sure that it's good-hearted, and I'm sure, you know, it's the best idea in the world. But don't slap, just because you're a Christian coming up with, with a socioeconomic theory that maybe is right, uh, doesn't mean that that's a Christian socioeconomic theory. Because uh, there are Christians who could come up with a different socioeconomic theory. And so we have to debate on the, on the, on the merits of the case. But it's so important that we don't try to slap Christian labels on things that are just because we think they're good or smart or wise. Because um, good and sincere and decent and smart people can disagree with that. And we don't want to say the kingdom uh, is, is you know, about your theory versus their theory. 
uh, have whatever, you know, Jesus calls Matthew, who uh, was a tax collector, to be a disciple. And then he calls Simon the Zealot, uh, who was a zealot, to be a follower of him. And now, tax collectors were the conservatives of the conservatives. I mean, they were the Rush Limbaugh's of, of the first century Jewish culture. And, and, and zealots were the, 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 the radicals. They, they, were, they wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire. And sometimes we have accounts of, where zealots would assassinate tax collectors. So Jesus calls them both to follow him. Yeah, you can bet um, they would have had words. <laughs> well, but what's amazing is we don't read a word about that in the Gospels. And Jesus never comments that, you know, Matthew's view is a little better than Simon's or Simon's is a little better than Matthew's. And what that silence is saying is, is that when you have Jesus in common, if you're, if you're thinking right and both following Jesus, your different opinions about the kingdoms of this world are utterly inconsequential. Uh, it ought to be the case that if you're passionate about Jesus and I'm passionate about Jesus, well, then you maybe are a, you know, right wing radical and maybe I'll be a left wing radical uh, in terms of what I think government should do. But it ought to be such a minuscule thing. We could talk about it, disagree, but it ought to be so little because you know what? The hope of the world doesn't lie in that. And our job isn't about figuring out that. Uh, our job is to be furthering the kingdom by what we're willing to sacrifice for others. And um, yeah, so if we have our, have our heads on right, we won't get sucked into those polarities. Oh, that's so helpful. It just feels like a breath of fresh air with all the anger and vitriol out there right now. So, like, what should our posture then be toward government? Obviously, you're driving the point home of separation in church, of church and state in our language or our kind of American, American framework. But what should our posture be? Because I'm hearing the objection in my mind, well, you're ungrateful as you sit the beneficiary of violence and of the state and of all of that in your nice little safe American city, drinking your nice coffee. Um, like, what should our posture be toward our government? Well, you know, that, that I, I get this argument, I suppose you guys do too, where people will say, it's easy for you to be a pacifist and to claim nonviolence because you got to, you know, you're enjoying the protection of our military and the police force and, you know, how convenient. Yeah, you're ungrateful, um, you're entitled, you're unpatriotic, you're, yeah. Uh, yeah, the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. And to be honest, it pisses me off. <laughs> but that's where I have to love and bless them and, and you know, <laughs> get, get calm. Because look at, there, the early Jesus taught this, all right? Jesus would have taught it, and he got crucified. And the disciples preached it, and they all got martyred. And throughout church history, you've had people who hold this, and they were willing to pay their life for it. The early Anabaptists, they all got massacred because they held this. So don't think that it's just, you know, I happen to be born in America. Sorry, you know, but this is where I'm at. This is where I feel called to be at. And and it's just, um, I, I it's, it's a red herring at best. It's grossly unfair at worst to, to try to use that. Uh, as a refutation of of the the uh, of the the position, um, so yeah, I'm in America. Sorry, I apologize, but what, what am I supposed to do? Okay, but, no, yeah. oh, go ahead. No, you. Well, okay. So in terms of our posture towards the government, uh, to be honest with you, um, the more indifferent, the better. I, I it, it is it, it is not the hope of the world. It will do what's going to do. I, you can have opinions about it. Uh, that's fine. But uh, put all your eggs in the basket of the kingdom of God, because that's the hope of the world. And that depends on the people of God being willing to uh, change their lives in ways that manifest the beauty of that kingdom. Um, and so it, it, just don't get overly involved. I pray for the government. Pray that God gives wisdom, you know, because a lot of things hang on that. Uh, but but um, uh, the 
the posture should not be one of whole scale passionate commitment. Uh, reserve that for the kingdom of God, in wow. my humble opinion. Yeah, that's agree or disagree. It's just refreshing to hear that in light of the morning routine I have of reading the news app and conversation after conversation about all the uproar right now in our country and all the the political and partisan divide. In closing, would you just summarize for us in your own words, since most of this conversation has been around Romans 12 and 13, would you just summarize, Greg Boyd style, the synthesis of what is Romans 12 and 13 saying in a nutshell to us as followers of Jesus in the world today? It's saying... uh, you follow the way of Jesus. Christians follow the way of Jesus. Uh, never, never, never retaliate. Never repay. Never repay evil with evil. Always repay evil with good. Uh, give your enemies something to eat if they're hungry, and something to drink if they're thirsty. Um, and 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 leave all judgment to God. Leave all judgment to God because uh, says in Scripture, "Vengeance is mine," says the Lord. So leave all vengeance to God. Now God will. Use governments to exact vengeance, the very thing you're not supposed to be doing. And, and those servants are agents of wrath, but you're, you, you are to leave all things to, uh, all wrath to God, and this is how God does it. Uh, so God will uh, use the sword of government to bring about as much justice as possible, but don't you ever be part of that, because your job is to put on display a different kingdom. Wow. Well, thank you for your time, Greg, and for all of you hearing this online. Again, uh, one of the things we love about Greg is both his mind and his intellect, but also his heart and his humility. So he's a man, as you can tell, of passion, but also a pastor who's well uh, versed in this and aware that, man, there's clarity and there's ambiguity. There's black and white and there's gray. And so as you're wrestling with this, I'm sure there's stuff you like, stuff you dislike, stuff you agree with, stuff you disagree with, questions that were answered, questions that you actually now started to ask. And that's good. We just want you, as you're hearing this, to wrestle. And as Greg said, I, just, I love that kind of pastoral example of you're thinking about this, you're feeling called to this, that, or the other. Just wrestle with the teachings of Jesus. And uh, and do it in community and do it with your Bible open and your heart open to the Holy Spirit, but just wrestle, sit in that tension and wrestle with it. So that, I think, really is our call. For those of you hearing this, um, just compare and contrast everything that Greg is saying or myself or Josh are saying to the teachings of Jesus, to the writings of the New Testament, to our call to follow Jesus as Lord and let God work stuff into your heart. So, Greg, Josh, I don't know if you want to say goodbye, thank you, all of that. Yeah, man, thanks so much for your time. Honestly, uh, as much as this was helpful, it was just a blast for me to just sit here and listen. So thanks so much for talking. Well, it's fun for me, too. I, I, I love these kind of questions. I love that you're a community that's wrestling with this stuff. You know, asking the question is 90% of the, 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 the issue. It's, it's what we don't notice that, that, that really harms us. And it's when Christians just assume that, uh, they don't even think to ask the question whether I should serve in military or serve in a capacity where I might have to engage in violence. Uh, that is what really damages the church. But to wake up, to begin to get this wake-up process where you begin to ask, you know, just because everyone else assumes this, should I as a kingdom person be doing this? Uh, you know, and is this really kingdom? That is, now you're in a sweet spot where God can begin to work with you and give you wisdom and guidance and, and all of that. So I, I applaud you guys for, for going down this road. It's not, it's, not, it's not an easy road. It's not a popular road. Uh, but it is the kingdom road, and so I, I just bless you with that. Well, thanks, Greg. You've been an inspiration to us. You're the most punk rock pastor that I know of, so thanks. <laughs> okay, man, I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, well, s- signing off. God bless you as well. Bye-bye.